Good morning. My name is Brent. I'm one of the pastors here. I'll be uh, sharing a sermon with you today. But before we get into that, uh, I thought I would explain why the color purple. So my slides for today, they're in purple. There's a purple cloth on the table. We use the color purple in Advent because uh, a long time ago, when dyes were pretty expensive, purple was the most expensive dye. And so purple was a sign of royalty. So we have purple in Advent as a sign of the coming king, Jesus Christ. Have any of you had to wait a long time for something? What about opening presents on Christmas Day? Now, I know for some of you it has been probably quite a long time since you were a little kid. But remember that time when you were a kid and you were waiting to open presents on Christmas Day. I can remember myself uh, throughout the month of December when my parents would go shopping, I'd always try to like peek and see what was in their bags. And then I remember especially on Christmas Eve um, waiting for Santa to come. And, and I tried to like see if I, and one time I thought I actually saw him like through the window or I saw his shadow. And, uh, but just imagine that time on Christmas Eve when you're waiting for the presents. I remember uh, trying to go to bed and I couldn't sleep because I was so excited. And then I remember waking up really early before my parents and tiptoeing out to uh, see the loot that Santa had brought. Another time uh, that I waited, this was actually longer than waiting for Christmas presents. Some of you guys know that I was picked on in middle school. Well, I waited for about three years to get out of that and go to high school. So that's another time of waiting for you. Uh, Another time of waiting, I think probably one of my hardest times of waiting, was waiting for my girlfriend at the time, Eva Larson, to marry me. This is a picture of me and her about six years ago when we first started dating. (laughs) Yeah, it's been a while. Um, So when we started dating, um, she was a freshman and I was a senior. And we actually, yeah, I know, we actually started dating in the last two semesters of my senior year. So I was on my way out, and she still had a long time to go. And so by the time her sophomore year reached around, I had already been out of college for like six months. I was kind of away from my college community. A lot of them had left, and I was like ready to move on to the next step. So I started talking about marriage, and this freaked out. Eva out. Because she was a sophomore. She wasn't ready for marriage, right? She still had, um, she still had the college experience to experience, time with her friends, uh, figuring out what she wanted to do with her life. And I was talking about marriage. So she told me, you know what? Let's just not talk about this for like two years, and then maybe you can bring it up. So I waited and waited, and finally she was ready to start talking about it. It was her junior year, And it was uh, the spring. And so we kind of had talked that, you know, a year engagement would probably be a good amount of time. And then that way we could get married after she got out of college. So uh, I started putting plans into motion to propose to her that summer before her senior year. I called her parents, asked them if I could marry their daughter. They said yes. And uh, I started making plans. And so the plan was this that we would go to Cannon Beach. I would invite her to go to Cannon Beach with my family at a beach house we stay at in the summer. 
and there I would ask her to marry me. So it was, uh, the Cannon Beach trip came, and uh, the first night I barely got any sleep because I knew the next morning I was going to ask Eva to marry me. The morning came, we ate breakfast, I said, hey, you want to go on a beach walk? Said it nice and casually, and we started to go on the beach walk, and secretly I called her parents and told them to come over, because they had slept the night before somewhere else in Cannon Beach. And so they came over to the house while me and Eva were going on the beach walk, and her parents and my parents started to get everything ready. They brought out the champagne and hors d'oeuvres, and they were like, it was going to be a party. They were excited for us to get married. So we went for the walk, and as we were going on the walk, I started to, when it it got to the perfect spot, the sun was shining, uh, the wind was calm, I started to pull out the ring. I started to make the motion, and then she looked at me with like just this great fear in her eyes, and she said, no, stop, (laughs) don't do it. And then she started to bawl, and I was like, what? I was crestfallen. Suddenly, I was crushed. Um, I was like, what do I do now? What do you mean, stop? She said, I'm not ready yet. And I said, oh. Uh, so I, 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 I sounded a little kind of more sad and angry than that. Um, and so I asked her to explain. And, and what she said is that she realized just a couple weeks ago that she actually needed another semester to graduate. So she was going to graduate in December, and she wanted a summer wedding. So that means instead of a year-long engagement, if we had gotten engaged at that point in time, it would have been a two-year-long, a two-year engagement. And that just seemed too long for her. And and she said she was actually prepared to tell me that beach uh, trip. So too bad it didn't happen the night before, but that's okay. Uh, So I found out then and, uh, and at that time, I also cried because I didn't really know what to do with myself. So, um, but she said, I still want to get married, just not yet. So that was the point of hope. <laughs> just when I thought I was done waiting, Eva told me she wasn't ready, and so I had to wait some more. We agreed that I had already done my part. I had already gone through the stress and anxiety of planning the event. So we put the ball in her court, and I said, okay, when you're ready, you can ask me. Um, and it better be good. And it was good. Uh, about half a year later, on December 10th, which uh, in three days from now was two years ago, she proposed to me at Millennium Park in Chicago, and it was magical. And of course, I said yes. Well, as hard as it was for me to wait for Eva's timing, and not my own, it's even exponentially harder to wait on God's timing. God makes people wait, sometimes for a very long time. And just when they think they're done waiting, they might end up waiting some more. There has been throughout human history far greater periods of waiting than waiting for someone to marry you, and people have waited far longer than I have ever had to wait for anything. Our Advent candle lighters, the Postmas, read from Matthew and Luke passages about Joseph being told his fiancée Mary was carrying the Messiah. The news about the Messiah being born was prophecy being fulfilled in their midst. Specifically, the passage read this morning fulfills Isaiah 7.14, 
Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. The Israelites had to wait a very long time for this and hundreds of other passages to be fulfilled about the Messiah. And while they waited, they endured a lot of violence and oppression. In the Old Testament, there's hundreds of verses that foretell the coming of the Messiah and the kingdom that he would bring to this earth. Many of them are found in Isaiah, but there are also passages in Jeremiah and other prophetic books as well. The book of Isaiah came to the Israelites in the time of dire need. It was 722 years before Christ and Israel had fallen to worshiping idols. The upper class abandoned the lower class to die in the streets. And in addition to that, the ruthless Assyrian Empire, which is pictured above, raised 46 Judean cities to the ground. They destroyed all of northern Israel. They took the entire population of 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel, the northern tribes, and sold them into slavery. To this day, these tribes are lost. The only two tribes that are left are the Levites and the Judaites, from which we get the term Jews. Into this scene of hopeless desolation, God speaks through the prophet Isaiah and tells him that he has not abandoned his people. He will send the Messiah to make things right. This brings us to our scripture reading for today. Please follow along in your Bible or use the screens. For the first scripture, I'll be reading Isaiah 9, 6 through 7 from the New International Version. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. And the government will be on his shoulders and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. For our second scripture... I will be reading Isaiah 65, 17 through 25 from the New International Version. Isaiah 65, 17 through 25. See, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. For I will create Jerusalem to be a delight and its people a joy. I will rejoice over Jerusalem and take delight in my people. The sound of weeping and of crying will be heard in it no more. Never again will there be in it an infant who lives but a few days, or an old man who does not live out his years. The one who dies at a hundred will be thought a mere child. The one who fails to reach a hundred will be considered accursed. They will build houses and dwell in them. They will plant vineyards and eat their fruit. No longer will they build houses and others live in them or plant and others eat. For as the days of a tree, so will be the days of my people. My chosen ones will long enjoy the work of their hands. They will not labor in vain, nor will they bear children doomed to misfortune. For they will be a people blessed by the Lord and they and their descendants with them. Before they call, I will answer. While they are still speaking, I will hear. The wolf and the lamb will feed together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox, and dust will be the serpent's food. 
They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, says the Lord. These two prophecies I just read, plus many, many more, describe a Messiah who would come in the line of King David. This Messiah would be Israel's rightful king. He would be a king who was filled with God's spirit. He would bring, he would bring freedom to the captives, heal the sick, and give sight to the blind. He would be pierced for our sins and suffer for our transgressions. This Messiah would overthrow the oppressors and do away with evil once and for all. In place of the oppression, he would establish a new kingdom that would last forever. And all this would result in people's salvation. Their sin would be no more. The Messiah would make way for the remaking of the earth into the new heavens and the new earth. Humans would no longer die of disease, but they would live eternally. The wolf would lie down with the lamb, and God would be amongst them, intimate and close. This is what it means for the kingdom of God to come to earth. Now, the kingdom of God, it's a concept that is throughout the whole Bible, and a way to summarize it is this. The idea of the kingdom of God is that it is the reign or rule of God. It is the realm in which God's will is actualized, and there's nothing contrary to his will going on. Now look at the screens. This is how Israel thought the advent of the Messiah would happen. They thought it would go like this. Human history is going along. The Messiah appears. And through the course of his life, he eventually sets up the kingdom of God. From that time on, human history ends. All the bad people go away. All the suffering goes away. And we live in eternal bliss with God in the kingdom of God. This was Israel's hope. These prophecies gave God's people hope when their world seemed dim. This hope reassured them time and time again that through many years of oppression to come, the Messiah would come. These words let the Israelites know they were not forgotten, that God had a plan, that even though it looked like his plan had failed, even though desolation was everywhere, there was a reason for these tribulations. Necessary things had to come to pass in order to fulfill God's plan. God was not just sitting around waiting to act, however. God was acting. God was acting by speaking through his prophets and using his people to be a light to the Gentiles. However, I'm guessing as good as this promise was, no one had any clue how long they would have to wait. They waited for 722 years. Can you imagine waiting that long? That's a very long time. And While they waited for these 722 years, Israel would have to undergo suffering and oppression by six more empires before Jesus came. You have the Babylonians, the Persians, the Greeks, the Ptolemies, the Seleucids, and finally Rome. Talk about a long wait. During those times, the Israelites hung on to the hope that they had in the advent of Christ. However, it was hard. Throughout the Old Testament, people constantly lament that it seems like God is taking forever, and a refrain that often comes up is, How long, O Lord, how long until you save us and bring your kingdom? In the season of Advent, Advent, we remember that at one time Jesus had not been born to Mary, and people were asking the questions, How long? How long until the Messiah is born and frees us? However, Advent is more than just that. As we know, Jesus was born to Mary and Joseph in the town of Bethlehem around 2,000 years ago. 
In his birth, life, and ministry, he fulfilled many of the Isaiah passages. This is why when Jesus asks his disciples if they know who he was, Peter was able to say, you are the Christ, the Messiah Israel has been hoping for. However, when Christ was captured by the priests, flogged, and then crucified, many of the prophecies had yet to be fulfilled. Because of this, many of the disciples started to doubt, and all but one of them fled the scene of the crucifixion, hiding in a room, afraid that their revolution had failed. Things were not going like they had thought. The advent had happened, but now the Messiah was dying. Rome still ruled, oppression and suffering still existed, and bad people were still here. Even after Christ had risen and shown himself to Mary, some of his disciples don't recognize him. At the end of the book of Luke, Jesus sees two disciples who are walking to Emmaus. He greets them, but they don't recognize him. He asks them how they are doing because he sees they look downcast. In frustration, these disciples say that Jesus of Nazareth was crucified, and we had thought, we had hoped, he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. We thought he was the one who was going to bring the kingdom. They say this dejected, as if perhaps they were wrong. Later on, Jesus walks back with the disciples to their home, and he breaks bread with them. And it's in the breaking of the bread that their eyes are opened, and they suddenly realize they have been talking to the risen Savior all along. For the next 40 days, Jesus comes and goes and makes appearances and talks to his disciples. And then he is taken up into heaven, and the angels reveal to the crowd watching that there will be a second advent. It is when Jesus comes again that the rest of the prophecies in Isaiah will be fulfilled. Jesus had inaugurated the kingdom of God, but would it not be until he returned that he completes it? Look again at this picture. This is what Israel thought their hope was, that human history would go along, the Messiah would come down and bring them into the kingdom of God, thereby ending human history as we know it. Instead, Jesus revealed, can you go to the next slide? Thanks. Instead, Jesus revealed that his plan looked more like this. Human history is going along. Jesus comes down. It's the advent of the Messiah. And Jesus establishes the kingdom of God. But he doesn't end human history. He splits the Messiah advent into two advents. So now we're waiting for Jesus' return for the rest of the prophecies fulfilled. This is where the church finds themselves. We find ourselves in between the two advents. Instead of a nice, clean, single event, ending human history and bringing God's kingdom, Jesus brings God's kingdom to earth and has it coincide with human history. And now we're operating in both the new reality of the kingdom, but we're still here on earth. When theologians describe the kingdom of God, they use the words now, but not yet. Meaning as Christians, we are living in the kingdom now. It's going on, but it's not complete yet. Not until the second advent of Christ. The kingdom of God, the realm in which God's will is followed, is of course in heaven. Yet now, because of what Jesus has done, it is also here. It has begun on earth. It is happening right now amongst us. And people live according to God's will. The history of the kingdom will endure at the end 
when the, sorry, just a second. So at the end, when Jesus comes a second time, human history will end, but the kingdom will endure. So what does this mean for the disciples and what does this mean for us? It means more waiting. We, like Israel of old, are waiting for Jesus to come and to consummate his kingdom, to finish it, complete it. We've been waiting for 2,000 years already, and for all we know, we have another 2,000 years to go. We really have no clue how long it will be. So why such a long wait? I think back again to the time that I waited for Eva to be ready to marry me. I remember that day that she had tears in her eyes, and she told me she wasn't ready. It was crushing. I had no idea what to do with myself. I thought, why wait? I'm ready. Let's get married now. Plus, what am I supposed to do with myself now? Just kind of sit around and mope? Just when I thought the waiting was over, I realized there was more to come. And in retrospect, I realized that this time was needed. Sometimes, this is what it is to be God's faithful, pe- God's faithful people waiting for him to act. The New Testament actually describes the church waiting for Jesus' second coming like a bride waiting for its bridegroom. And it describes the second advent like a wedding feast when the two are finally united. The thing is, when you're waiting to get married, you're not just waiting. You're not just sitting around. You're actually extremely busy. I didn't understand it at the time, but I am so glad Eva said no when she did. I was not done living with college roommates, and neither was she. My last year of seminary was so busy that it would have been a terrible time to get married. I would have given her hardly any time. In her wisdom and foresight, she knew that, and she knew I wasn't ready either, and she saved herself from what would have surely been a crappy first year of marriage. Even once we were engaged, we needed time to plan the wedding. Waiting for marriage was not just sitting around. Waiting for marriage was one of the most active things I've done. It was a really busy time in life. There was a lot to do. And this is what it means to wait for Jesus to come a second time. God isn't just sitting around, and we shouldn't be either. He is active. It's just for this part of his plan, his action is to use us as the body of Christ to manifest his kingdom here on earth. Because of the first advent, We're forgiven of our sins by Christ's death. Our separation from God is done away with, and we are brought back into right relationship with him. We have been given the Holy Spirit who is our guide. Thus, we are brought under God's rule. We are citizens of his kingdom, and we seek to live for him and die to our own wills. This is what the Christmas message is about. This is what Christmas did for us. Christ set up his kingdom and made us its citizens so that we might be Christ to others. That is our job while we wait for him. It is to be the body of Christ on earth, letting God use us to redeem the brokenness of humanity. Of course, we are imperfect vessels. We still sin. Suffering is still here. That is because although we now belong to the kingdom, we're also still a part of the world. It is the paradox of now but not yet. Redeemed but yet we still fall prey to sin. So what do we do about this paradox of being in the kingdom, yet also being swayed by sin? I think we do our best in the present to follow Christ while still looking forward to the hope that we have in Christ's second advent. Our hope is in Jesus Christ alone, in what Jesus did on the cross 
and what he is doing in us now and what he will do in the end days. We put our hope in what Jesus will do. Now, this isn't a escapist theology. We shouldn't just let the world go to hell and sit and wait for Christ. We shouldn't just abuse the environment, let people starve, let racism, sexism, nationalism, and classism run rampant. That's not what waiting for Christ is about. Rather, it's when we are doing our job as the body of Christ that we encounter the need for Jesus' return. There is a darkness in this world, a great darkness that only the hope of God's kingdom can satisfy. Both abroad and right in our own homes, we encounter evil every day. It's breathing down our necks, corruption, unjust wars, adult and child trafficking, depression, drug use, racism, self-hate, to name a few. As we actively work to participate in God's redemption, we will encounter haunting questions. How could people do this? How is it possible to be that evil? In living out the reality of seeking justice and redemption, we will encounter suffering that makes us ask, why? Why, God? God knows when we do what he asks of us, we will encounter things that make us ask him, why? And I think it is for that reason that he gives us the hope of the kingdom in the New Testament. No matter how much we suffer now or we see others suffering, we know that a day is coming when Jesus has the victory. He will come down to finish his work. One day every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Jesus has the final victory. Suffering and pain will end. This is our hope. Love wins. Our hope is in God's final act of sending Jesus for the second advent. That is why I think at the end of Bible, the last image we see is a description of the hope of God's kingdom, which is a reiteration of the hope Isaiah describes in our passage for today, Isaiah 65. See how they match up. This is Revelations 21, 1 through 4. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. After the hope that is described, the Bible ends with these words, Come, Lord Jesus, come. When life is tough and we see suffering around us, we should ask for Jesus to come. This is our hope. This isn't escapism, for we still have an active role in his plan of redemption, but as a people We know that there are evils only Jesus can mend. We need Emmanuel to come. It is right that we should hope for that glorious day when tears will be no more. Come, O come Emmanuel. Come, Lord Jesus, come.